More than a few times this past week, I mentioned to people that on Sunday I'd be telling my congregation how the world was going to end. I uh, even invited someone to church saying, hey, if you want to know how the world's going to end, you should come to church on Sunday. Um, I was half kidding when I was telling people that I was preaching on the end of the world, but only half. Uh, really and truly, this passage uh, that we have before us this morning sheds a great deal of light on the subject of the end of the world. So here's how we're going to proceed. I'm going to try and set the context of this passage, explain it, apply it, and then once we've got all the data before us, I'll endeavor to give you the who, what, where, when, why, and how the world as we know it will end. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, let's, we're going to begin by trying to understand the context of our passage. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 989. 989. So far, in our study of this letter, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we have met the men whose names head this letter, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. God graciously brought all three of these men to know him, to a relationship with him and with the church in Thessalonica. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 that Paul and Silvanus were instrumental in founding the church. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, Paul tells us that Timothy made a, a special trip to check in on this new and young congregation to encourage them in the faith. Paul, he, he probably penned this letter sometime around 50 or 51 AD, obviously after his, his uh, first letter. So, so far, uh, what we've studied these past couple of weeks, we've seen that Paul has thanked God for the church's faith, their love, and their perseverance in the face of persecutions and affliction. This was an important encouragement to this Thessalonian church as, as their church was actually started, planted, uh, to use today's language, in the midst of great conflict in view of, uh, and Paul, he was pulled away from them. Uh, in, in his absence, this conflict seems to have continued as Paul mentions it regularly in his letters. In, in view of that hardship and opposition, Paul encouraged these saints to persevere to the end, trusting in God's justice. Paul encouraged them to pursue the glory of Jesus Christ in their lives until Jesus called them on to glory. And this morning, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we see that Paul not only wanted to address the challenging conflict that they were facing, but he also wanted to clear up some teaching concerning the day of the Lord. Jesus Return and the Thessalonians' hope is the subject of these verses. Apparently, some people had confused the Thessalonian church by asserting a notion that was contrary to Paul's teaching concerning the day of the Lord. Paul then writes these verses to this troubled church to reassure them that the day of the Lord had not passed them by. We're going to study these verses under four headings. What has happened what has not happened, what will happen, and what should happen. I cannot promise that I will answer all of your questions concerning this passage, but I do think that this passage offers great clarity for how we should be living in light of the sure hope of Jesus' return. This passage teaches us that the Lord Jesus has not yet returned, but that He will. 
When the Lord Jesus does return, he will destroy all falsehood and unrighteousness. And so until he returns, the people of God are to believe and love the truth. Until Jesus returns, the people of God are to practice and pursue righteousness. This is the message of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Let's begin by considering our first point. What has happened? What has happened? And as we do, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So what, what has happened? The church in Thessalonica has become unsettled. They've been shaken and alarmed, as Paul says there in verse 2. Now let's remember, this is a young church. It's not a church that has been around for decades and decades and that is extraordinarily mature. This is a young church who has been thrown into the deep end of life's difficulties. The one who led them to faith in Jesus Christ has been suddenly ripped away from them. That's Paul. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the congregation have died. They have been persecuted for their faith. And they have faced the normal afflictions that come with living in a fallen world. All of that would be enough to shake up the church. But something else has happened. Some strange teaching concerning the day of the Lord has come into the church. Some had been teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. Given how Paul describes this church in this letter and in his, in, in his first letter, as those who receive his teaching, can't we imagine that in their youthfulness, they might eagerly and uncritically receive other teaching as well? Paul mentions three forms or means through which this strange teaching may have come into the church. He mentions a, a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter that seems to be from him. It is hard to say for certain precisely how this strange teaching had come into the church, but what we do know from Paul's language is that he is disavowing every form of it. He says that it's false, he doesn't want to be associated with it, and he doesn't want the Thessalonians to believe it. So let's stop and think for a moment by why this false teaching would be so troubling to the Thessalonian church. What would it mean for the day of the Lord to have already come? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, Paul taught the congregation that the day of the Lord meant that the Lord Jesus would come and gather his people to himself. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it's just such a beautiful summary of Paul's teaching on the day of the Lord. Don't you just love the tenderness of the image of our being gathered together to him? That the shepherd is gathering in his sheep. The father is gathering in his children. But, but if the day of the Lord had come and the Thessalonians still remain on earth, then what hope do they have? Remember last week when we studied verses uh, 5 through 12 of chapter 1, Paul made clear that when the Lord Jesus returns, that he will justly judge all of those who have persecuted and afflicted them. Do you see what this strange teaching would mean and just how unsettling it would be? If it were true that the day of the Lord had come, then was there any prospect of their persecutions and afflictions coming to an end? 
What is more, if Jesus had already come and they were still on earth, then they were not with Him. There could be no greater heartbreak for a Christian than not to be gathered to the Lord Jesus in the new heavens, in the new earth. What has happened? Well, the Thessalonian church has been alarmed by this false teaching. And Paul is obviously saying that this false teaching is false. It's not true. He instructs them, perhaps even commands the Thessalonian church not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm. And there's a clear point of application here for us, I think. We should not receive teaching uncritically. That doesn't mean you have to go looking for errors when you listen to teachers, but it does mean that your general stance toward teaching should be searching the scriptures to see that if the teaching you're receiving is in line with God's word, if it is, then praise God and heed that teaching. If it isn't, then ask questions to make sure you've understood that teacher correctly. If it becomes clear that they are a false teacher, then have nothing to do with them and their teaching. We need to be good Bereans, as we learn about in the book of Acts. People who search the scriptures to see if these things are so. This is especially true in an age when there is lots of teaching running around that is easily accessible. Just a few clicks and you're hearing some teaching. Comparing the teaching that we're receiving with the scriptures is part of how we guard against deception. Children, youth, young adults, uh, there will likely come a day, should the Lord Jesus tarry, that you are no longer living under your parents' roof. And it is my prayer that if and when that day comes, you will still be a part of a local church. Be careful when you're looking for a church to make sure that the truth of God's word is being preached. It is the most, the most important aspect of a church. Without the right preaching of God's word, without the gospel, you only have a social club and not a church. Ask your parents how you can be sure that what the church is teaching is true. Ask your parents how to discern the true teaching of God's word. That would be a great conversation to have this afternoon or this evening. How to tell whether or not a church is being faithful to the truth of God's word. What has happened? Well, the Thessalonians, uh, their church has become unsettled by this false teaching. And since it is false, then what has been taught had not happened. So let's turn now and consider our second point. What has not happened? What has not happened? And as we do, uh, let's begin again in verse 1. We're going to look particularly at verses 3 through 6. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, let's read verses 1 to 4 for now. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from, be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, what has not happened? The day of the Lord has not come. And let me be just as explicit as I can about the day of the Lord. 
The day of the Lord is the day in which Jesus consummates His kingdom through His return, gathering His people to Himself and the final judgment of the living and the dead. All of that happens on the same day at the same time. So again, what has not happened? Jesus has not returned. He has not gathered His people to His side as we learn from 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. He has not come to judge the living and the dead as His promise to be part of His return. He has not uh, been revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, as we learned about last week from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, we know that the day of the Lord has not happened. We know that the Lord Jesus has not returned because two other things have not happened. The day of the Lord has not come because, as Paul says in verse 3, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And, number two, the man of lawlessness is revealed. So the day of the Lord has not come because two things must happen first. What are those two things? Simply put, a rebellion and a revelation. So let's think more carefully about these two things. Let's think about this rebellion This rebellion does not simply refer to a a general kind of rebellion against, uh, of mankind against God. That, as we know, has already happened. That happened at the fall, as recorded in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And all mankind since Adam has lived in rebellion against God. We are descendants of Adam. Rebellion in that sense is actually the natural disposition of mankind. The rebellion that Paul is speaking about on this occasion is something more particular and precise. Paul is speaking about apostasy. In fact, a a more literal translation here would be, that day will not happen unless the apostasy comes first. And here, Paul is referring to an apparent falling away of sorts. Paul is not referring to a group of people who lose their salvation, for we know that Jesus cannot lose any of his people No one can snatch them out of his hand, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28. Here Paul is referring to a group of people, perhaps even a very large group of people, who profess to know God, but in the end, it turns out they never knew him. And so they turned away from him. These people are what we might call superficial professors. They might know about God, but they don't know God. Some people can be so close to the truth and yet not believe it. Some people can even fool the church for a season. This is what happened according to the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John tells us that some men had been a part of the church in Asia Minor, but that ultimately they left the church because they were not really a part of the church. They weren't really believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says that this rebellion has not happened. The revelation of the lawless one has also not happened. And what a a revelation it will be. Paul doesn't hold back when he describes this man, does he? He says that he's a man of lawlessness and a son of destruction. How could lawlessness not be destructive? How could turning God's purposes for his created order on its head not be destructive and against God's law, God's divine law? When he is revealed, this man will claim for himself worship, which is only and ever due to God and God alone. And here, Paul seems to be picking up on the language we heard read earlier in the service from Daniel chapter 11. Keep your eyes particularly on verses 2 and 3, and listen to Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
And let me read Daniel 11, 36 and 37. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, I think Daniel's prophecy was proximately uh, fulfilled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who, as one scholar observed, uh, desecrated the Jerusalem temple during the time of the Maccabees by setting up an altar to the pagan god Zeus. I think that happened somewhere around 167 B.C. While Antiochus Epiphanes seems to have been the, the proximate fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, which is a, a partial and near-term kind of fulfillment of the prophecy, Paul understands that there will be a figure much like him who will do the same thing at the end of time, only in a different place. In other words, even after Antiochus Epiphanes, there is still a future and final fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy yet to come. It's possible that the Roman Emperor Gaius, who uh, in history is known as Caligula, um, kind of shapes, further shapes. Paul's thinking about the fulfillment of this Danielic figure. Um, Gaius, or Caligula, was a, he was a weird and wicked man. Just go and read stuff about him. It's strange. Anyway, in fact, at about 40 AD, um, he, Gaius, Caligula, contemplated setting up a statue of his image in the temple of Jerusalem, but Agrippa persuaded him not to move forward with his plans. Uh, let's remember that Paul is writing to this church just about 10 years after those events. Everyone in the church would have likely could have remembered Caligula's wickedness. While the book of Daniel certainly had the physical temple in Jerusalem in view for its proximate fulfillment, and while the events of Caligula, or Gaius, may have added to Paul's grid for kind of understanding and thinking about the man of lawlessness, it's my sense that Paul views the prophecy in Daniel of having another temple in view for its final fulfillment. And that temple is the people of God. So when Paul says in verse 4 that this man will take his seat in the temple of God, I don't think Paul has a physical temple in Jerusalem in view. And you and I know uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 with the Romans setting up their standard in it. No temple in Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt in order for this to happen. You know why? Do you know how Paul always uses that phrase, temple of God, in his writing? He always uses it in reference to God's people. God's people are God's temple, where the Spirit of Christ dwells. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul now views the people of God as the temple of God. And shockingly, Paul says that this man of lawlessness will come in among God's people and lead a rebellion. But the final fulfillment of things has not yet happened. So the Thessalonian church does not need to fear that the day of the Lord has already come and passed them by. Still, what does this mean? 
that the people of God still, what this does mean is that the people of God, and we too, need to be on guard. If you take a look at verses 5 and 6 there, Paul even asks the Thessalonian church to remember his teaching. If they had just remembered his teaching, they would know that these things have not yet happened. Again, Paul's whole concern here is to comfort the Thessalonian believers with the truth that the day of the Lord has not yet come. And here we see just how important it is to hold on to the apostolic teaching. Otherwise, we'll be unnecessarily frightened and alarmed. So, so read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 now. Do you not remember that I was, when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Boy, I would love to know what the Thessalonians knew, right? Wouldn't you? Paul said in verse 6, and you know what is restraining him. What did they know? I don't know. But God, in his wisdom, he has not given us what they knew. And we must be content with the knowledge, or lack thereof, that we have. God must know that we don't need to know what the Thessalonians knew. And God knows best. Verse 5 actually repeats one of the truths of verse 3. It repeats uh, one of two things that has not happened. This man of lawlessness has not been revealed. What is so striking about this is that this word revealed is the same word that Paul used in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to speak about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word refers to an unveiling, which means that this man of lawlessness is hidden. Now, if he is hidden... Do you think we can see him? No. Then isn't it a colossal waste of time to try and pierce the veil to figure out who this lawless one is? Yes. You are wasting your time if you are trying to figure out if this political figure or that political figure is the man of lawlessness. You are wasting your time if you are trying to figure out if this church leader or that church leader is the son of destruction. He's hidden. That final figure has not yet been revealed. It hasn't happened, but it will. There are some things that will happen, and some things that are even happening now. So let's turn now and consider our third point. What will happen? And as we do, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 12. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, so far we have talked about some things that have not happened. But here, Paul actually says there are several things that will happen. Lawlessness is already at work. Verse 7. The restraint of the lawless one will be removed. Verse 7. The lawless one will be revealed. Verse 8, his coming will occur by the activity of Satan and be attended with counterfeit signs and wonders. Verse 9, many will be deceived 
and led astray, verses 3 and 10. Concurrent with that, God will send them a strong delusion so that they continue to believe what is false and receive their just judgment and condemnation, verse 11. Finally, the Lord Jesus will return to kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth by the appearance of his coming, verse 8. That's a lot of stuff that will happen. But let me just share with you what I think are the, the two things that we need to be most aware of. The two things which kind of frame all of these things taking place. First, lawlessness is already at work. And secondly, Jesus is going to return and consummate his victory. Remembering these two truths will keep you from getting lost in the fog. Remembering that lawlessness is already at work will orient you to living in this world, in the realities of this world. And remembering that Jesus will return to judge wickedness and gather his people to him will help you to live in hope for the next. Let's think about these verses in a little more depth now. Paul says that in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. If the mystery of lawlessness was already at work in Paul's day, then it is still at work in our day and will continue to be at work until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this lawlessness and rebellion against God will characterize the whole of redemptive history until Jesus returns. I think that this means we can expect to see recurring episodes of rebellion and deception throughout the course of history until Jesus returns. Paul says in verse 7 that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The ground is being made fertile soil for the coming of this lawless one, this final climactic figure. Even though the lawless one has not come yet, there is still great danger. And you know what, Christian? There always has been. Lawlessness and deception has been at work from almost the very beginning. What did Satan do in the garden? He deceived and encouraged Adam and Eve to act in a way that was contrary to God's law. When they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became lawless and a law unto themselves. It resulted in the destruction of the created order and their relationship with God. As Jesus taught his disciples about the end of all things, do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus told us that this would continue to be the case, that deception would continue to make its appearance when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the end of the world in Mark chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, he said, See to it that no one leads you astray. Why would he need to say that? Because people are trying to deceive. Jesus said, See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And a little later on in that chapter, in Mark chapter 13, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead many astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus told his disciples to be on guard against false Christs. And this reveals that some of the troubles that characterize the lives of the Christians in the first century will also characterize the lives of Jesus' followers until his return. The Apostle John even confirmed that the apostolic era was marked by antichrists. So in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, John wrote, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. John says to his dear children, it is the last hour. This expression is a way to describe the redemptive historical context of John's readers and our context too. If John's readers were in the last hour, then we're even at a later point in that last hour than John and his readers. Antichrists, plural, were turning up in John's day, even though Antichrist, singular, had not yet come. And who were those Antichrists turning up in John's day? Well, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, and 2 John 7, I think all these scripture references are there in a handout in your, your bulletin. John says that these antichrists are those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and that he's from God. John says that these are deceivers and antichrists. Sadly, many can and have filled those shoes. We even have people teaching us about Jesus today. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims do not believe that Jesus was the eternal Son of God who became man. But we, we could look to other institutions and people who have made false claims about Jesus and say that they have been kinds of antichrists and against Christ. But they may not be the final antichrist. And here I want to repeat myself and urge caution again. This final climactic figure is hidden. He hasn't been revealed which means that we can't see him. So spending our time speculating will be fruitless. Associated with this, we as human beings, I think, also have a tendency to think of our societal context as the epicenter of Christianity. May I suggest that America might not be the epicenter of Christianity? And that's not even to say that these events will necessarily take place in what may be viewed as the epicenter of Christianity. We're just told that they'll take place in the church generally, and yet by default, we, we tend to think of these events through the lens of our own experience. And that's not sinful, but it might also not be quite right. It was Gerhardus Voss who wisely said that, quote, the best and final exegete of these events will be the eschatological fulfillment itself. In other words, it's going to be the, the final event that actually interprets it so that we understand it. We would be wise to patiently wait upon the Lord and trust Him to reveal the end in its time. We'll know who this man of lawlessness, lawlessness is at the end. There is plenty for us to be doing now. There is plenty of false teaching which we should be on guard against. Let's worry about what we're facing now in our own lives as individuals and a church, and leave the end to our God, who will bring about the end at the right time. You know, antichrists have been present all throughout the history of the church, and sadly, there is no sign of a slowing current. But we know that one day it will be stopped. Though they use different terms, it seems to me that John and Paul had the same kind of figure in mind. John's antichrists lead people astray from the truth about Jesus. And notice what Paul says in verse 10. But those who participate in this rebellion, they are those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Only by loving the truth about Jesus 
that he was God's son in the flesh who appeared in history to give his life for sinners. Only by loving this truth and believing this truth will anyone be saved. Saved from God's wrath and saved from the deceiver. As I mentioned earlier, we can expect the course of redemptive history will be marked by episodes of rebellions and false Christs until the end. Even though we will have those episodes, there is a kind of restraint that is occurring in the world. I'm not going to walk through the weeds and tell you all the different proposals that scholars give. I think there's at least somewhere north of seven different proposals for who this restrainer is. I'm just going to tell you what I think it is, and we can discuss other possibilities at the door if you're really interested in this. Um, given Paul's language here, it may be a case that there is one final kind of grand rebellion, one final last gasp of Satan trying to do the most deceptive damage that he can. And Paul says that at some point, the restraint of the lawless one will be removed, and then we'll see this last desperate gasp of Satan. Until that time, there is someone and something restraining the lawless one. I think the restraint is probably the preaching of the gospel, which is another reason why we as a church ought to support the gospel work here and around the world. I would argue that from Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, uh, about the gospel being proclaimed in the world, and after that, then the end will come. Or we could even think about Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And what does the church do? The church preaches the gospel. And hell is restrained. The best argument might actually be uh, from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, where the Apostle John, he says that Satan will be released from his prison to come out and deceive the nations. Satan is depicted in that text as surrounding the beloved city, which is most likely God's people. But in the end, Satan and all those whom he successfully deceived will be finally defeated. I think that portrait has strong parallels with what Paul is saying here. And in case, in case you, dear Christian, are nervous and worried about the end and worried about this lawless one, just look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. Christian, don't worry. You're going to be gathered to Him. Okay? Persevere. When the restraint comes to an end, Something else will happen. And this is without a doubt the most important thing that will happen. Jesus will return. Uh, look at the wonderful truth of verse 8 again. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus, what's he going to do? He's going to kill him. Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul understands that the restraint will occur until it is time for Jesus to return and destroy him. The reason the man of lawlessness is revealed is because it is time for Jesus to be revealed from heaven to bring about the day of the Lord. When that happens, when Jesus returns, he will judge this man of lawlessness, judge those who have rejected the truth. And as Paul told us in verse 1, Jesus will gather his people to himself. So brothers and sisters, I ask you, should we fear the revelation of the lawless one when we know that Jesus will be revealed to defeat him? No. His end is sure and our heavenly hope is secure. Do not be alarmed or anxious about the end. Instead, pray for it to come. 
Because when it comes, we will be gathered to Jesus. We have every reason for confidence in the future. Verses 10, 11, and 12, they're all associated with God's final judgment. Notice that Satan deceives those who are perishing. My non-Christian friend, if you're here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to notice this. Satan doesn't care about you. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He never did. But your future isn't determined by Satan. It's determined by you. If you look at the middle of verse 10, you'll see that those who are perishing are perishing because they refuse to love the truth about Jesus. Loving Jesus leads to life. Loving deception leads to death. Notice who's responsible. Paul says that those who are perishing are perishing because they refused to love the truth. How we respond to the truth about Jesus is always our responsibility. Some might object, but verse 11 says that God sends them a strong delusion. Well, what God is doing there is nothing other than giving those uh, who have refused to love the truth over to their own sin and deception. It's a delusional choice to refuse to love the truth. So God gives men over to their delusional choices. God sometimes judges the embrace of sin and unrighteousness by giving individuals over to their sin and unrighteousness. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, where he said, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. With this in view, we come to see the totality of the condemnation that is coming in verse 12. All refused to believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All who have refused and taken pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. Which leads us to our fourth, fourth point. What should happen? Uh, the, the first and most obvious thing that should happen in light of Paul's teaching is that we should love the truth and so be saved. Friends, do you know the truth about Jesus? Do you know the truth about Jesus? Do you love the truth about Jesus? You will love the truth about Jesus when you know the truth about God and your sin. God made the world and all that is in it. He made you and me to love Him and serve Him and glorify Him. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have all decided to oppose God, exalt ourselves, and live lives as a law unto ourselves. We have all chosen to live our own way instead of God's way. In our sin, we are exalting ourselves up over God. We are setting ourselves up as a higher authority over the author of our lives. Sin, you see, is nothing less than rebellion against God. Because God is holy, just, and good, He must punish sin. We learn from another one of Paul's letters that the wages, the cost, what's due to sin is death, eternal death. We are in danger of facing God's just punishment of our sin forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that in love, God sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we have not lived. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never sinned, and yet He died for sinners. That's what Jesus did. 
on the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who'd ever turn from their sins and trust in Him. Jesus calls us to turn from our rebellion, to turn from our love of unrighteousness, to turn to living for Him and trusting in Him and loving Him. Jesus calls us to believe not only that He lived and died for us, but that He was also raised for us three days after His death on the cross. Because three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all by His resurrection that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Friend, this is what it means to love the truth. It means loving the God who sent His Son to give His life for our salvation. If you love the truth, if you love Jesus, then you will be saved. And if you want to know more, about what it means to love the truth and so be saved, please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member you came with here this morning. There's nothing more important than you can speak about this morning than what it means to love the truth and so be saved. Christian, Christian, as you read this passage earlier in the week, I wonder if you thought to yourself, wow, this passage, this passage is rich with application for me and for my life. If you were just to read through this text and, and think through application, you'd see that we should not be shaken or alarmed, verse 2. We should not be deceived, verse 3. We should not rebel, verse 3. We should not oppose God or exalt ourselves, verse 4. We should remember the revealed teaching of the apostles and the word of God, verse 5. We should remember that, the lawless, that lawlessness is at work. Verse 7, we should remember that Jesus will return. Verses 1 and 8, we should love the truth. Verse 10, we should believe the truth. Verse 12, and take pleasure in righteousness. Verse 12, this is what should happen in our lives. I think that the main thing that, that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to understand from this teaching here is that they need to be on guard against deception and more profoundly embrace the truth about Jesus. It was the false report about the coming of Christ that had alarmed them. That's why he said, don't be deceived. Truth and deception are central in this passage. Remember that the man of lawlessness coming is described in the same terms as Jesus coming. Remember that his coming is marked by signs and wonders, just as Jesus' coming will be marked by signs and wonders. But the man of lawlessness, he is a counterfeit. And we need to be able to distinguish between the truth and counterfeit. Do you know why counterfeiting succeeds in deceiving people? It's because it looks like the real thing. That's why counterfeiting succeeds. So, so how do you spot the real thing? How do you tell the difference between truth and error? By looking at truth over and over and over and over again. By studying the truth over and over and over and over again. I don't know if it's true, but I, I assume it is. Uh, but I, I've heard it said that, that federal agents are taught to tell the difference between genuine currency and counterfeit currency by only studying real, genuine currency. They, they become so familiar with genuine currency that they're able to tell the difference between the real thing and a counterfeit. Christian, how familiar are you with the truth of the Bible? 
you, you probably feel like I tell you this every Sunday, and I might. Uh, every Sunday I might say something to the effect of, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's true. And there is another reason that you need to read your Bible and pray every day. And it's so that you will know, know, know the difference between the truth and error. Knowing your Bible will keep you from being led astray. It takes work to know the truth. But I promise you this, you will never regret having studied your Bible. Another thing that will help you from being led astray is being part of a church. If you are not a member of a church, then you are leaving yourself open and exposed to being deceived. A church body helps to form you, helps to shape your categories of discernment as you talk about the truth of God's word with other believers. God means the church for your good and for your guarding against error. You also need to be a part of the church, not just formally, but materially. You can be a church member, but not really be integrated into the life of the church. You can come and turn up, but are you being tied down so that you will not be shaken from your moorings? You need to have significant, real, and meaningful relationships in the church body to help keep you tied down in the truth. If you have superficial relationships in this body, you might be at fault. <clears throat> Purpose to have one meaningful conversation with another brother or sister in Christ after every service. Ask another brother or sister in Christ, what was the one thing that, you, that encouraged you today from, from today's service? And be ready to have an answer yourself. Maybe it was a song. Uh, maybe it was something in a prayer. Maybe it was a scripture passage read. Maybe it was a truth from the sermon, a truth like Jesus is coming back to gather his people to himself. That's going to be mine. Having discussions like this, even if they're brief, help build the foundation of significant, meaningful, and real relationships. And there's another thing that should happen. The Lord Jesus will return. And so we should live in light of that truth. And what that means is that we pursue and take pleasure in righteousness. Verse 12. Let's go hard after holiness. Let's repent of unrighteousness and pursue righteousness. Let's take pleasure. Let's delight in righteousness. Let's praise God for where we see another brother or sister in Christ turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Let's encourage them by saying, I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit's work in your heart and in your life. I'm encouraged that you're saying no to this sin. Christian, be encouraged. I'm here to walk with you. The Lord will give you strength. I know he will. How can I help you keep pursuing righteousness? Will you pray for me to do the same? Let's talk with each other in these ways and encourage one another and take delight in the righteousness that we're pursuing in our lives. Brothers and sisters, let's be people who are weird to the world, but whose lives are wonderfully attractive. Let's live righteously. Let's live and love like Jesus. We should conclude. We began this morning by me uh, making what was perhaps a rash vow. I promised that if you hung around to the end of the sermon, I'd tell you the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the end of the world. So now that we've done the heavy lifting of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12, to 
Hope we're ready to take it in. Who? Who will bring about the end of the world? Jesus will. He will by His coming. What will happen at the end of the world? Jesus will return to judge wickedness and gather His people to Himself in the new heavens and the new earth. Where will the world end? Everywhere in the world. There is no place where Jesus' return in glory will not be known. Where? Everywhere. When? When will the world come to an end? At the right time. Jesus uh, said, you know, people are going to say and try and figure things out, but nobody knows the times and the season. The Father knows. Jesus will turn at the Father's appointed time. Why? Why will this world come to an end? This world will come to an end and Jesus will usher in the new heavens and the new earth because Jesus wants to gather you, Christian, and me. Jesus wants to gather his people to his side to be with him forever. How? By the Lord's mighty power and everlasting love. Brothers and sisters, do not be alarmed by the prospect of the end, but joyfully await the appearing of our dear Savior. Let's pray together.